I wish I could teleport you a bowl of this potato and leek soup that I just had. Made it. It was very good. Very comforting. Would make you feel better, I'm sure. That does sound wonderful. I'm going to have to make do with this large travel mug full of ginger turmeric tea, which has been doing uh, yeoman's work for me all day. I've been using my voice all day. I've had about four mugs of this stuff, and this will be number five. I only wish it had some caffeine in it, man, because we are starting this uh, recording at about 9.13 local time, which suggests to me that the edit will be done about 3 a.m. That's carrying it pretty deep football fans it's now time for the d3football.com around the nation podcast here are your hosts matt coleman you have a very forceful handshake mr coleman and greg thomas thank you greg That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 317, the 17th episode of our 16th season. It's your podcast for October 31st of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com and who has never backed a piece of maintenance equipment into a cold post. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, really, who, who among us has not at one time or another accidentally backed into a goalpost. These things happen. It happens. I mean, I've definitely backed vehicles into things, into fairly immovable things. They may have even been captured on security video, but uh, they did not require the complete restructuring of a Division Three football game. More on that later, because there were so many things that happened on Saturday. Greg, we took one of, I think, already one of the best seasons of Division Three football ever, and it just seemed like it amped up yet another notch. We had a great top 25 battle come down to a two-point conversion in the closing minute. Every important game in the WIAC finished like practically at the same time and in dramatic fashion. And, you know, all of these other things, it kind of makes me forget that we didn't actually have the regional rankings last week that I promised everybody. One week ahead of ourselves on the regional rankings, yes. The only thing this week didn't have that we've enjoyed in previous weeks with tons and tons of great games were staggered starts. All of our games, uh, all of the really exciting games really kind of happened all at the same time. But that's okay. We've got extra devices, extra screens. We can walk and chew gum at the same time as it were. But yes, another thrilling week of Division Three football in Week 9. Yeah, shall we start with like the biggest game in the history of Amos Alonzo Stag Field up in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. Yes, we know. We do know. This is a thing that we know. Susquehanna played Union in Week 11 in 2009 for the Liberty League title. I think this is bigger because Susquehanna is ranked. Susquehanna is unbeaten. Susquehanna has been on the doorstep multiple times. Susquehanna, in its last season in the Centennial Conference. Looking like it's going to win that conference's automatic bid, just like it did in its final year in the Liberty League all those 13 years ago. Yeah, I didn't check and see about big results at the other stag field in Chicago, but at this particular stag field, probably the biggest game in Susquehanna history, at least in the D3Football.com era, I would think. But yes, at Amos Alonzo stag field, Susquehanna knocked off Johns Hopkins in a game that, like you said, Pat, likely settles the Centennial Conference automatic bid. 
The Riverhawks defense, they had the best of the game in the early going. They forced Hopkins to punt three times and turn the ball over on downs once in their first four possessions. Susquehanna, on the other hand, they scored twice in their first four possessions. They got out to a 14-0 lead in the second quarter. Hopkins did come back in the second quarter. They got a pair of Ryan Stevens touchdown passes late in the half, but a blocked PAT and a missed two-point try staked the Riverhawks to a 14-12 lead at halftime. The second half, very even again. As well, Susquehanna, they edged out to an eight-point lead. Then trailing 26-18, Johns Hopkins had their longest drive of the game, an eight-minute and six-second drive that took the game clock down under one minute to play. Josh Polsey secured a one-handed catch for a Hopkins touchdown there with 49 seconds left. Susquehanna's Keith Green knocked away a Hopkins two-point try to preserve that 26-24 win. Hopkins, Pat, scored four touchdowns in the game. They did not convert any of their points after. They were chasing that that extra point that they missed in the very beginning. Uh, Great job by the Susquehanna defense in this game. We're going to have more on this in our Fast Five segment, but Greg, I'm watching this game, same as you, from you know about middle of the second quarter on. Aside from the fact that I could never really tell how much time was left in any particular quarter because of I don't even know what the world was going on there. I just felt like any second now, Johns Hopkins was just going to get all Johns Hopkins-y and you know, start flinging the ball all over the field. This big, long drive, the thing it does is it does very effectively take away any chance for Susquehanna to come back if Johns Hopkins had, you know, gotten that two-point conversion to tie the game. But, you know, they left it all hanging on that two-point conversion. They did. And, you know, you wonder if, you know, maybe you speed up a little bit there, down eight. But if you're planning to get that one score, maybe you don't think there's enough time for another possession. You're going to score. Susquehanna's going to get it. Maybe they can run it down and can kick a field goal and win the game and you don't get the ball back, something like that. Interesting way to play the end of that game. We're going to hear more about that too. Yeah, it was a really good job by the Susquehanna defense. Like you said, they never let Johns Hopkins get explosive. Not a lot of big plays for Hopkins in this game. And Susquehanna finally gets that big Centennial Conference win that they've been chasing for, it seems like, a handful of years now. We'll have more on this in Fast Five. Frank Rossi will be talking with Coach Tom Perkovich. Over in the WIAC, Greg, you got these three games going on simultaneously. And, you know, again, just a set of thrillers in each of those. Yes. So three big games in the WIAC. And if you thought for just a second that the WIAC was going to let you down one time, you were wrong for that one second. Lightning speed recaps here. Wisconsin lacrosse, they look to be in control of Wisconsin Oshkosh early, but the Titans came back multiple times. They eventually tied the score 35 apiece in the fourth quarter. Wisconsin lacrosse, they responded with a 10-play, 37-yard drive that ended with a Ryan Byrne 51-yard field goal to propel the Eagles to a 38-35 win. This would be a miracle make for the Eagles right now. Very long kick. Very long kick, yep. Ryan Bernie, 6-2 senior out of West Salem, trying to give the Eagles the lead here. 52-yard field goal attempt. Got the distance. He got it. Wow. And he made that field goal. What a kick. Wow. Ryan Barney, what a kick. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Worcester. Ryan Byrne. Feel the burn. Yes, that's how you pronounce Ryan Byrne. Receiver and a kicker for UW Lacrosse. Meanwhile, Pat, over in Whitewater. 
The Warhawks let a 27-6 halftime lead get away from them as River Falls rallied to tie the game at 27 apiece with three minutes and 15 seconds to play. In that last 315, the teams traded punts, and then Whitewater drove 25 yards and five plays with 33 seconds left to set up Jeffrey Isotolo McGuire's 49-yard field goal attempt. Well, the Warhawks, for the second straight year, barely escape UW River Falls grasp. Jeffrey Isotolo McGuire, a 49-yard try. He kicks the ball and bounces off the rim. He's got it. replay it bounces off the crossbar and finds its way over a miracle for Whitewater Nolan. Holy cow Jeffrey Isotale McGuire is the hero of today's game. Just another incredible set of dramatics there right Whitewater is so close to being like a three loss team right a couple of bounces here a you know a dropped fourth down pass in the end zone by Mary Harden Baylor one of two of them gets caught, that's a completely different thing. You know, we talked about after week one, you know, what what's the range of results for Whitewater. They could go nine and one, they could go six and four, and they are like coin flips away from all of those scenarios. Six inches away from Mary Harden Baylor scoring to put that game away and then field goal off the crossbar and in really game of inches for sure. And nobody knows that better than Whitewater this season. While all of that is going on, over at Wisconsin Stout, the Blue Devils and Platteville, they're in overtime, or should I say overtimes. John Smazinski ended the game in the third overtime with a one-handed grab in the back of the end zone, hauling in a pass thrown off balance by Sean Borgerding as he was getting mushed by a pair of Pioneer defenders. Bottom half of the third overtime, 22 all. That's two-point conversion would win it. Sean Borgerding in the shotgun, rolling to his right, looking to the end zone. Now going back left, he launches it back of the end zone. It's up. It's gone. Gone. Touchdown. Two-point conversion. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's a score in the Blue Devils win. They walk it off. John Smazinski for two. Mushed is the uh, technical term, right? It really is. And then we really couldn't wrap this segment of the WIAC recap without mentioning a kicker. Uh, Wisconsin South's Luke Cool was five for five on field goal attempts, including a 47-yarder in the second overtime. Pat, no chippies in the WIAC this week. Big kicks from all of these teams to get wins. Absolutely. So right now we know at least a little bit more about the standings in the WIAC, but, uh, you know, God forbid trying to rank these teams, right? really difficult to rank these teams. You were hoping that maybe you would see some kind of separation here. You gotta keep them separated. And help you sort out those three or four or five or maybe even six WIAC teams that voters have been considering over the course of the year. But then you get a week like this where those top six teams in the WIAC all play within a field goal of each other. And who knows? They, I, You know, these teams, they play each other. They all look the same. Just adding to what I said earlier, this may well be the most entertaining season of Division Three football we've ever had. Whether or not you think this season is the most entertaining season of Division Three football we've had, the true fact is we couldn't possibly cover it nearly as well 
and as thoroughly as we do without the help of one very specific group of people, and those are the people who subscribe to D3Sports.com via the Patreon service. So Patreon allows people to donate maybe as little as $3 a month, maybe as much as $50 a month to help fund people who create content, who create art, who are writing a book, uh, or in this case, producing a podcast, producing a wide range of websites, as we do here at D3Sports.com. And we're very thankful for those people who do that for us on Patreon. That's right, Pat. Our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of the D3Sports.com family of sites. But during football season, we see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week. We get features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game day. All of these things are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. Maybe you are already a Patreon subscriber. If that's the case, thank you so much. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. And if you are interested in joining that group of Patreon subscribers, you can go to patreon.com slash d3sports. Or if you are interested in making a donation of more of the one-time variety, you can go to d3sports.com slash help. And now for our Fast Five, let's send it out to Seelands Grove, Pennsylvania, where Frank Rossi is standing by with Susquehanna coach Tom Perkovich, actually recorded on Saturday. See you all met. You all met. You all met. A game like this really did take a lot of grit and determination on the field, a lot of smarts on the sideline as well. Was this a chess match for you? What, how do you feel after all this? Are you like exhausted from having to play that chess match the way you played out? Yeah, I think anytime you're playing a game against those guys, against some of the, you know, uh, top teams in our conference, you know, you know that you need 60 minutes and it's highly contested and you can't let your guard down, but it definitely was a chess match, you know, the, just some of the things we went to and then how they adjusted and then we went to some other things down the stretch and, um, but that's what good football teams have to do, you know, and uh, my hat's off to them. I mean, they're, they're so well coached, uh, they've got some great players. They're a, t- they're a tough one to figure out and because uh, they, they do so many things and they do them so well. So. Um, our kids believed in it, and we were able to uh, kind of, I think, wear them down a little bit in the run game in the, in the second half, which was really, really big, and, uh, you know, take what they were giving us. And, and uh, our defense did an unbelievable job today, you know, also playing the chess, the chess match and, and winning in those uh, post-touchdown snaps, right? Two-point conversions and, and the blocked extra point just they play – they play so big in a game that against two teams like this. Yeah, it was a wild scoring affair in terms of that block extra point leading to what comes down to three two-point conversions yep. and ultimately the knockdown was what wins the game. So, you know, huge thing there. But let's talk about that drive preceding the knockdown. Were you surprised at all by the approach they had in that drive where it was mainly run, run, run down the field until that fourth and goal play? Well, I think, you know, our offense has been pretty explosive all year. And I think what he – which was smart. He was he was trying to not leave a lot of time for us to go back out there, especially with the momentum we had, I think, with some scoring drives in the second half. So I would have played it the same way, taking the clock down as far as I could and, you know, try to try to lean on the guys and believe in and believe in his guys. And um, so I wasn't shocked there uh, at all. Um, I, I did learn that a helmet off under a minute th- stops the clock. Uh, so that, you know, we had to punt it and play a few more snaps of defense. So I got to manage that situation better. Um, 
but I think the approach was the proper one. At halftime, what did you say? Because, I mean, you go from 14-0 to 14-12 at the half, and things are kind of feeling like they're getting away from you a little bit. What did you say to your team and Mike especially? Well, just, you know, I, I grabbed him after the one uh, drive where we missed a couple throws in the end zone. And I said, you know, it, it takes it takes 11 guys, right? One guy, a quarterback, can't can't be the one guy that that makes all the plays you know so I thought he should have handed one of them off and he threw it and you know just trying to get him to calm down and believe believe that he doesn't have to make every play you know and just believe in the process you know I thought that we had a good plan um, we just got to execute a little bit better we played with great effort which was the two things I said let's have great effort let's have great execution you know we were up and down in the execution part but the effort was there all game and um, you know, I think we just stayed calm and, and confident throughout because we know we're a good football team. Your line on the offensive side of the ball, uh, they didn't exactly open up a lot of big runs today. There's no doubt about that. But they protected Mike through a lot of this game, importantly to give him the time. Give me a grade on how they did in your mind. I'd have to watch the film, you know. <laughs> As the old line coach, it's hard because my angle, I'm on the field calling the plays. Um, but I'd, I'll give him a B. Okay. Uh, I could go up and down. From there, but uh, you know, it's you know they're they're a high-powered with Luke Sherman and you know their their defensive front. Um, you know, I don't think we gave up a sack again, you know, and so it's one on the year, and we got to keep that obviously going. And Michael's helped us out. I mean, he made some plays with his feet and did a great job. But I'd, I'd give him a B. I think we were able to run the football when we needed to and wear them down when when we needed to. And uh, our backs, you know, did a did a solid job, but it wasn't. Uh, maybe as, as efficient as I would like, but we were ahead of the sticks when we needed to be. Now you're in what I would call uncharted territory for your team after getting through this one, and you need to win one of two still to get that Pool A bid, at least a share of the Centennial yeah. Championship. Muhlenberg is probably going to try to take out their anger on somebody after the way their season's been going, and you, know, you still want to make sure you're ready for a playoff bid and healthy and everything else. How do you posture this team? How do you get them focused here? And what do you exactly focus them on? Well, I think you just focus, you know, that, you know, their, Muhlenberg was a team that, to put it lightly, kicked our ass a year ago, you know, so we've got a lot to uh, to figure out. They're a good football program. You know, Nate does a great job and staff, and obviously for me, I used to coach there, so mm-hmm. it's always an interesting dynamic, um, but, you know, we know we're going to play another, another really, really good football team next Saturday. Hopefully our guys are ready for that. Uh, sometimes it's hard to go back-to-back emotionally, so we got to figure, you know, be be great as a staff and be great as players, just getting our mind mind and bodies ready to go. You know, Susquehanna has won three of the last four meetings with Johns Hopkins, so Perkovich has done well in the chess match it, that he and Frank talked about. The difference this time around is that the Riverhawks win comes late in the season, and it sets up a scenario where they just need to split their final two games to finally, finally win the Centennial Conference and get back into the playoffs. They've been so close for the last few seasons. And now it looks like Perkovich and Susquehanna are going to get their shot in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, there's no need to put up 80 points in week 11 to try to impress a committee. All you need to do is win one of those two games. But if you want home games, you want to win both of those. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is actually going to go to a coach. Morrisville State lost on Saturday. 
in just you know one of the worst ways imaginable on the last play of the game on a play that really is quite clearly called incorrectly by the officials correctly throwing the flag when Utica snapped the ball without being set for a full second would have meant that the final seconds would have automatically rolled off and Morrisville State would have escaped with a 17-14 victory instead Utica threw a touchdown pass and they won 20 to 17. Now, we received more than one email from parents of Morrisville players asking us, d3football.com, to review and overturn the play and the result. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who you think we are. We don't have that power. In fact, nobody has the jurisdiction to overturn a result once the officiating crew has left the playing service. And this is where my game ball comes in. Mustangs coach Ed Raby could, you know, could well have lost his cool. Instead, remains above the fray, worked to rein in the people looking for this non-existent injunctive relief. And then Raby had to go to his players in their team meeting on Sunday to help them make sense of all of this. Here's what he said uh, in the form of a statement that he provided to D3Football.com and delivered to his players on Sunday. Quoting here, It is clear based on the film that the referees made a mistake at the end of our game. In that sense, we were robbed, but we put ourselves in the position to have the referees impact the game in that way. It hurts because we put a lot into this. When you invest into something and lose, it is always painful. That being said, we had several opportunities to put the game away in the final five minutes, and we did not execute enough in order to do that. Games are never won or lost on one play. Regardless of our feelings, the outcome will not change. We have no control over that. What we do control is how we respond. There are numerous times in life where things aren't fair and don't go our way. In those times, you have to decide to either fight back or go into the tank. We must move forward and focus on our goal, quote, to win the next game. That is always our goal. Our preparation and execution this week will determine our outcome. I believe strongly we have good enough senior leadership that our guys will be ready to play next weekend. Greg, this is a big moment for a young coach a guy who graduated from college in 2012. He's in his early 30s. This is a great teachable moment for the team. Morrisville State coach Ed Raby gets my game ball. It is, and it's a, it's a really unfortunate way for Morrisville State to lose a game, but I don't think that should take away from the really incredible season that they're having, setting a new standard for Morrisville State in Division Three, And, you know, you hope that they can bounce back in these next two weeks, maybe in an ECAC bowl game at the end of this season. Pat, my game ball goes to Wisconsin lacrosse defensive back Kate Osborne. In the fourth quarter of UW lacrosse's 38-35 win at Oshkosh, Oshkosh rallied from a 12-point deficit to tie, but crucially not take the lead. An Oshkosh touchdown with 9.06 to play cut the lacrosse lead to 35-29. Osborne blocked the point after to keep the margin at 6. Oshkosh scored again with 5 minutes and 30 seconds to play to tie the game. At 35 apiece, Os- Osborne again blocked the tight extra point to keep Oshkosh from taking a lead. Osborne then intercepted Kobe Berghammer on Oshkosh's final possession to preserve the win. And for those two block kicks and a game ceiling interception, Kate Osborne gets my game ball. Damn, I liked my game ball, but your game ball's pretty damn good too. Impressive. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week is TCNJ holding William Patterson without a first down in its win on Saturday. This isn't the first time this has happened. 
In fact, it's the second that we know of in three seasons. Mount Union held Capital without a first down on October 16th of 2021. That was Greg's stat of the week in podcast episode 290. And as I look at our rundown in that podcast, Greg appropriately says, reportedly, the first time since 1985. You know, that 2021 performance isn't in this year's record book. So who knows how many other times it may have happened between 1985 and and Saturday. But Case absolutely held Worcester without a first down on September 21 of 1985, and TC and J did that to William Patterson on Saturday in a game the Lions won 33-2. Do not cue the music. This is a blocked extra point return that averted that shutout. The closest Patterson got was in the first quarter when the Pioneers had third and four at their own 41, and they were stopped after a three-yard gain. Similarly, in the fourth, Patterson was stopped a yard short on a third and five. Then they went for it on fourth and one at the TCNJ 37, but they were stuffed. That was Patterson's only fourth down attempt on the day. And credit Ryan McGuire with the record-preserving stop at the line of scrimmage, one of his two tackles on the day for TCNJ. Tying the record, which can never be broken, was the Lions' defense, and that's my stat of the week. In week seven, Kenyon wide receiver Zachary Kim caught a Division three season-high 17 passes in the Owls game against Worcester. Last week, he had a pedestrian six-catch game with three touchdowns. This week, Kim broke a 52-year-old single-game record at Kenyon with 280 receiving yards, and Kenyon's lost to DePaul. None of those things are my stat this week, Pat. In the last three weeks, Zachary Kim has caught 32 passes for 597 yards and 10 touchdowns. This young man has had an all-conference season in October alone, and that is my stat of the week. By the way, Kim and the Owls, they go to... Wabash's 221st ranked pass defense next week. So maybe another big game on the horizon for him. One of these times, I want you to do that whole build up with none of these are my stat and then switch to a completely different game. That would be awesome. I'm a real wild This is our time where we go region by region. There are six regions in Division Three. There are five at large bids. So there's no chance that everybody gets an at large bid. Just a reminder. You're going to love that in a couple of weeks. We're going region by region around Division Three. We're starting with who's on the run in the one. And oddly enough, who's on the run in the one in Region 1? Oddly enough, this week, it wasn't really the Springfield Pride. Don't get me wrong. You know, the triple option offense is still alive and well for the Pride. But David Wells, the Springfield quarterback, led the team in total offense on Saturday on the strength of his arm rather than his legs. He threw for 108 yards and three touchdowns completing eight of 12 passes. And for perhaps the first time in the 317 editions of this podcast, I'm going to talk about a Springfield receiver. And that's Noah Wagenblas, who caught six passes for 88 yards and two touchdowns. Two pretty impressive touchdown catches, mind you. The eight completions for Wells are the most for Springfield since they did the same against Utica back on October 4th of 2008. That was a game that the Pride lost 16 to 12. This was a game that they won against Merchant Marine by the score of 27 to 13. The run on automatic bids in the one is about to start in week 10. Endicott can clinch the, the CCC with a win against Salve Regina. Gallaudet clinches the ECFC with a win against Alfred State. Delaware Valley clinches the MAC with a win against FDU Forum. And Mass Dartmouth is off, but they can clinch the MASCAC bid with a Plymouth State loss. No clinching scenarios in the new MAC as undefeated Springfield and Catholic will play for that bid in week 11, regardless of any results in week 10. Greg, who's well-to-do in the two? 
We already mentioned Susquehanna, who is quite well-to-do in the two. The Riverhawks can clinch the Centennial bid with just one win in their final two games. Cortland has clinched the Empire 8 bid. They're the first team in. Ithaca can clinch the Liberty League bid with a win against Union. Carnegie Mellon is idle this week, but they can clinch the PAC bid with a Case Western Reserve loss in Week 10. No clinching in the NJAC this week. Salisbury and Christopher Newport are going to play for that ticket in Week 11. I'm sensing a pattern here to your rundown of the regions. This is important information, though. I'm not knocking you for it. It's been a little while since we've had a chance to talk about the Brockport defense as the uh, Golden Eagles have not been quite up to their usual standards overall when it comes to defense this season. But on Saturday, the defense practically outscored the offense as the team returned three interceptions and a fumble for touchdowns in a 54-2 win against Buff State. Yes, okay, that one's a safety. Ben Marshall returned an interception 55 yards for a touchdown. Giovanni Fresenda returned a pick 29 yards for a score before we ever got out of the first quarter. Raylan's Booten, a name which should be familiar, but I can't remember how to pronounce. He went 36 yards at a pick six in the third. And then Ishmael Dumbia picked up a fourth quarter fumble, and he returned at 57 yards for a score to cap off the scoring for Brockport. 24 points for the offense, 24 for the defense. Six extra points for you math majors at home. That's a total of 54. Seven total yards of offense for Buffalo State in that game. They had 11 first downs. Yeah, I mean, that math is wrong. Minus 80 rush yards. I contacted them about that. Uh, They have that fumble return, that 57-yard fumble return, credited as 57 lost yards for the Buff State quarterback. This is a game I was able to watch. I went back and reviewed the film. It is absolutely a fumble return. 57 yards for the touchdown, and I assume at some point it will get corrected, and that will be 64 yards of total offense. Those are not my stats, then. What do you see in the three? I mean, I think we all saw the video in the three of the Hampton City goalpost getting knocked down by a maintenance person on Saturday morning. That was a fun <laughs> thing to see in the Twitter feed. To contradict some of those tweets from Saturday, no, they did not play all in one direction like you do at uh, Wrigley Field in Chicago, but all the kicking took place at the one end. So Hampton Sydney scored in the first quarter in the left-hand end zone and then had to run all the way to the other end zone to kick the extra point. That's by Elijah Sweat, by the way. He was the kicker on our team of the week last week. It's a good thing that the uh, game or the half didn't end with a last-second field goal attempt in the wrong end of the field because the officiating crew would have been obliged to stop the clock, bring the ball to the other end of the field, and let them kick. No rushing the kicker on in the closing seconds in that scenario. Hampton City made it all irrelevant with a 28-21 win against Guilford and presumably is in the market for not only a new goalpost, but perhaps a new maintenance person. (laughs) Tough break for the maintenance guy. Pat, I see that in the three, we could have all of the Pool A bids handed out in Week 10. UMHB clinches the ASC with a win over Howard Payne. Trinity clinches the SAA with a win over Millsaps, and Huntington clinches the USAC with a win over North Carolina Wesleyan. The ODAC is not exactly a win-and-in situation for Randolph-Macon, but if Hampton-Sydney loses at Shenandoah, where presumably they have two goalposts, then Randolph-Macon will clinch with a win over Ferrum. That's what the four-by-four's for, sons. what the four-by-four's for. Correct. what's the uproar in the four? 
the uproar in the four pat is probably a week away to be honest with you the hcac the miaa and the ncac will all wait to settle their conference bids with games in week 11 the oac could be decided this week if mount union beats john carroll and baldwin wallace loses to heidelberg if baldwin wallace wins that game they're going to force an oac championship game against mount union in week 11 yeah i think either of those scenarios definitely possible in the oac the roar on Saturday at Worcester wasn't the sound of the bagpipes before the game. It was the Scots offense in the second half. After Wittenberg scored the first 27 points of the game and took a 33-7 lead into the middle of the third quarter, well, it wasn't all Worcester, but it was pretty much Worcester as the Scots outscored Wittenberg 37-10 the rest of the way and won 44-43. Worcester didn't lead until 11 seconds left when quarterback Mateo Renteria found tight end Cole Hissong in the end zone. That was the final straw of a huge comeback for Worcester, which is 5-3 and three and could finish with seven wins for the first time since 2013. Worcester finishes with Denison and Oberlin. First win over Wittenberg for Worcester since 2008. Pat, who's trying to survive in the five? Mumbo number five. Trying to survive in the five? We can talk about co-college Co, the proud alma mater of former Buffalo Bills coach Marv Levy, former NFL running back Fred Jackson. They have a week 11 date with Wartburg on the schedule, and the Cohawks are looking like they're going to make it a winner-take-all game in the ARC as Co edged Central on Saturday by a 37-31 score. Co is 6-2, 5-1, with losses to Hope out of conference and Dubuque in conference action, but they control their own destiny in large part due to those three rushing touchdowns from Ray Seidel on Saturday and two TD passes from Carter Maskey. Those guys outdueled Jeff Herbers and Logan Mott for Central, who went 15-174-2 and 13-148-1, respectively. Co needs to win at 1-7 Nebraska Wesleyan next week to keep its title hopes alive. The pool of teams trying to survive in the five has dwindled mightily this week. North Central, who hasn't given up a point in four consecutive games, can clinch with a win at Illinois Wesleyan. And Ripon can seal up the Midwest Conference bid with a win against Monmouth. Bids in the ARC and the NACC will likely have to wait until week 11 with games between Warburg and Co., as you just said, and Aurora and Concordia, Wisconsin. North Central hasn't given up a point in four games, huh? Hmm. Yeah, that music means something. Two hundred forty five minutes and thirty six seconds. Two hundred forty five minutes when no one scored. 245 minutes and 36 seconds Four games of shutout ball plus a little bit more Forced fumbles, smart tackling, ineligible man downfield A lot of three and outs and some bad play calls Good coverage, bad blocking Third down sacks and interceptions. 245 minutes of shutout ball. How about defense? Let's talk about defense. North Central's defense. 
put your hands up defense. That with a with the slightly slightly froggy voice this evening is a really impressive trick. I do not nearly have enough remaining voice to do as many takes on that as I would need to make it sound good. So you're going to have to live with that with all apologies to the original Broadway cast of Rent. By the way, the record is six consecutive shutouts by, oddly enough, Mount Union twice in 2012 and 2007 and Plymouth State of 1982. You got to feel like that's in play a little maybe for North Central with their final two games against Illinois Wesleyan and Augustana. I'm going to need a second to recover. Tell me who's in the mix in the six. Six In the mix in the six is going to be Linfield as the Wildcats can clinch the Northwest Conference bid with a win against Willamette and the Northwestern Eagles can clinch the UMAC bid with a win at Crown. The Mayak bid, as we know, will be settled in their conference championship game in week 11. The Skyak can go in a couple of different directions pending the result of this week's Redlands Claremont Mud Scripts game and the Wyak is still unsettled. Whitewater can clinch that bid with wins in their last two games, but nothing can be assumed in the WIAC in 2022. No, that's for sure. And back to the Skyak for a second, right? So the Redlands game is important because Redlands is winning the correct games, at least. Bulldogs lost to George Fox and they lost to Linfield from the Northwest Conference in non-conference action. They also lost to Pomona Pitzer and Claremont Mud Scripps in non-conference games as well. That's two losses to Skyak opponents that are not part of the Skyak standings. With the win on Saturday against Pomona Pitzer in the conference counting contest, the Bulldogs are 3-1, and one, control their own destiny with Claremont up this week and then a home game against Whittier to finish off the season. Quarterback Tyler Tremaine scored the winning touchdown for Redlands in overtime, and here's what he had to say about it. Yeah, it was a big down. Um, I dropped back and I'm looking right and there's a little bit of pressure, so I rolled to my left and I just saw some grass, so I took it and uh, we knew we had to score to come away with the win, so that's what we were trying to do. So as interesting as Saturday was, Greg, Friday was pretty interesting in the Division Three football world as well. There had been talks for a few weeks now about the possibility that indeed Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan might be adding football. I went back into the archives and saw so many stories from Calvin, Calvin Student Newspaper, Calvin, you know, Alumni Magazine, perhaps other places where it was just so definitive. Oh, we don't need to play football here at Calvin. By the way, football is coming to Calvin. It sure is, Pat. We have more coming. Yeah, we got more coming. Eastern University, they're starting next year. They're playing some uh, JV slash intra-squad games right now. Uh, Centenary of Louisiana is supposedly starting in 2024. And it seems like, you know, Calvin in its news release said, oh, football is coming in 2023. But I think football games, actual varsity football games, probably more like 2025. And if Maine Maritime comes back, Calvin could be team 245 after all said and done assuming you know no schools close in the interim yeah really tough to spin up a a football program from announcement to varsity games in under a year we know hilbert did that this year but usually not the timetable that new programs take there's usually a year of organizing and some football activities like you said jv games and some inter squad things uh before varsity action Nice addition for the MIAA, who currently has seven teams in conference. That means they've got one team off every week. This is going to even them out, help a little bit with some of that non-conference scheduling, going to 
chop out one needed game to find every year and Calvin Hope football rivalry. Why not? Right. Yeah. So if, if you're only in the Division three football world and don't know Division three basketball and other sports, Calvin Hope is a rivalry that goes back 100 years. They played a men's basketball game in front of 11,300 some people. This is 25 years ago, but it is still the standard in NCAA Division Three basketball, the most attended game. Over on the D3Hoops.com side, we have said, until you can put 11,000 people in the stands for a game, we are not considering any other possibilities for biggest rivalry in Division Three basketball. So I look forward to seeing what that looks like on the football field. My favorite part of Friday was watching the interplay between the Calvin fans, many of whom are very active on Twitter in the basketball world, now over here at the D3FB hashtag and all these Division Three football people. There was a particular reporter who is a listener to the podcast, as I understand it, so maybe I'm not going to call him out by name, but said, oh, now Calvin gets to learn all about Pool C, and a Calvin person responds, I'm the one who teaches people about Pool C and basketball. I'm pretty sure that Matt Snyder can understand Pool C in football if he can understand Pool C in men's basketball. Yeah, Matt Snyder's going to have the numbers down for that. He'll know where Calvin and everybody else stands in Division Three football. Should he decide to dabble, we know he does a lot of great work for the Division Three hoop side uh, with a lot of the efficiency ratings and RPI kinds of things that he does. Really, really great stuff on D3 hoops check out Matt Snyder's stuff when you get a chance for you football fans Matt Snyder is the Logan Hansen of division three men's basketball let's put it that way looking ahead to next week we are at week 10 and games to watch I'm going to go with number three Mary Harden Baylor at Howard Payne so the crew have been kind of you know methodically cruising through this American Southwest Conference schedule the past two times out wins against Texas Lutheran 45-16 and Saul Ross 45-14 and they're coming off of a open date this past week nothing like a high-powered offense to square off against as a good tune-up before the playoffs and who knows maybe Howard Payne fans will bring it at Gordon Wood Stadium in Brownwood Texas on Saturday hopefully that game gets some video I haven't I haven't been able to watch a game at Howard Payne this year great point uh, Mary Harden Baylor has in the past traveled with its own video crew I think maybe they scaled that back a little bit over the course of the past several weeks, but that's always an option. You can uh, maybe maybe they'll bring in their own video crew if uh, the Howard Payne stream is unavailable and unreliable. My game to watch this week is going to be the Deuces Wild game as number 22 John Carroll visits number two Mount Union. I feel the need to watch this one, Pat, because I haven't watched a single down of Mount Union football yet in 2022 mostly because they haven't played a team yet that I can get any kind of useful information about Mount Union from. Yeah. John Carroll, they have quietly been rolling their way through the OAC schedule after their week one loss at Washington and Jefferson. I don't expect the Blue Streaks to win here, but I at least hope to see Mount Union play two to three quarters of competitive football against top 25 level competition. So keep an eye out on those two games on Saturday, assuming you can even watch my chosen game to watch. Otherwise, maybe you'll have an eyeball to spend on North Central at Illinois Wesleyan for more shutout potential. Carleton at St. John's, River Falls at La Crosse, Whitewater at Stout, Bethel at Augsburg, Ithaca at Union, FDU Florham at Delaware Valley, Wheaton at WashU, Susquehanna at Muhlenberg, Salve Regina at Endicott. Gallaudet at Alfred State, Widener at Lycoming, Salisbury at Kane, Grove City at WJ Center at Birmingham Southern, Ripon at Monmouth, and Redlands at Claremont Mudd Scripps. Almost all of these games 
mentioned already by Greg. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Mailbag time. We could go to our emails from Morrisville State Parents. We could go to the emails from the parent of a specific Division Three football player who asked us what the five longest field goals were in Division Three football this season. His son's was not one of them. But instead, we're going to take this tweet from In the Huddle at D3FB Huddle asking, where does this weekend's Utica versus Morville controversial finish rank in the all-time controversial D3FB game finishes you've seen slash covered over the past 20-plus seasons? I mean, honestly, no finish in any Division Three football game that I have seen in the 20-lot of years could possibly stack up to putting the wrong team in the 2001 Stag Bowl because the clock stopped with one second left and allowed Bridgewater to defeat Rowan in the 2001 national semifinals. I don't think there's anything else that could be said, frankly. No. And you can see that there's a YouTube link from 21 years ago that will show you exactly what happened. there. very egregious. Those end of game situations where everybody is scrambling around and hustling and trying to get a snap off in the last second of the game. Always very messy, always very fire drill-ish, and not the first time that teams haven't been set in that situation and got a playoff. It doesn't happen often that that play ends in a touchdown that decides the game, but you see that kind of thing occasionally. Really unfortunate result there for Morrisville State, but you move on. That's sports. Sometimes the referees miss one. Thanks for your question. We take questions. Greg took a whole column full of questions and you can see that in this past week's around the nation here on d3football.com around the nation the column all right it's time for around the spot of course this day october 31st famously halloween that is not my on the spot it is also famously reformation sunday in the lutheran church and i only say this because we have so many lutheran schools in NCAA Division Three, playing football. This is the day that Martin Luther, you know, the Martin, actual Martin Luther, hammered his list of 95 grievances with the Roman Catholic Church onto the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. But we're going to start with the six teams with Luther or Lutheran in their name playing Division Three football this week. Greg, I thought about asking you to try to find some combination of these six teams that would lead up to 95 points, but I'm going to make it simpler for editing purposes, especially, and ask you to pick a winner in each of these games. And they are Westminster of Missouri at Martin Luther, Wisconsin Lutheran at Concordia, Wisconsin, Texas Lutheran at Southwestern, Luther College at Central, Pacific Lutheran at Puget Sound, and Cal Lutheran at Chapman. You have 95 seconds. What a great question. 95 seconds. Here we go. I will take Martin Luther over Westminster. I will take Concordia, Wisconsin over Wisconsin Lutheran. I will take Texas Lutheran over Southwestern. And that's where the Lutheran win streak is going to stop. Central over Luther, but then Pacific Lutheran over Puget Sound and Chapman over Cal Lutheran. The Knights are really kind of scuffling right now. And then you mentioned Wittenberg, bonus bonus on the spot. 
Ohio Wesleyan playing Wittenberg this this week for the skull, ye old skull, which is Halloween appropriate. Give me Ohio Wesleyan to reclaim the skull. You just jump all over the bonus question before I even have a chance to throw it out. Am I becoming that predictable? Am I that predictable? You'd mentioned Wittenberg, and I thought, hmm, I thought I would throw it in there. I didn't know that it was coming. There you go. I really didn't. So we're picking four Lutherans, and we're picking a black cat that didn't get to play last week on National Cat Day, and that is your on the spot. I like how we close that up really well. All right, my on the spot, Pat. I really like this one, and I wish I came up with a name for it, and I didn't. But it's two parts for you, Pat. Starting from the bottom of the others receiving votes section of the top 25 poll, how far up the list do you have to go before a team fails to score more than the number of points they received in the poll? (laughs) Second, starting from the bottom of the list, how far up the list do you have to go before a team gives up more points than they're receiving in the poll? Okay. All right. This is going to take some thinking here. So the first part of this is to find a team that doesn't score as many points as they've received votes. That is correct. All right. Very interesting. I like the looks of this. I've had half a thought right now about just taking Rippin. Rippin at 20. Rippin, I think, probably will not score 20 points against Monmouth. They may well win the game, but I'm thinking I'm going to take Rippin as my team that is not going to score as many points as they are receiving votes. As much as people talk about Mount St. Joe, I'd like to think that Mount St. Joe would give up fewer than 11 points, but Mount St. Joe gives up a lot of points. Bluffton scored 21 on them on Saturday, so I'm probably not going there. We're going for the team that gives up more points than they're receiving. So I'm going from the top down then? No. No, no, no. We're still going from, we're going from the bottom up. How far up the list do you have to go before a team gives up more points than they're receiving? Well, I think I just start with Utica then. Utica has one point. Howard Payne is going to give up more than one point. Is that really what we're going for here? No. Mm. Should we start from the top with this? Yes. Starting from the top of the top 25, how far down the list do you have to go before a team gives up more points than they're receiving in the poll? All right. Interesting. So... I think about River Falls, but I don't think there's a chance that they give up 60 to UW Lacrosse on Saturday. It's a very tempting possibility. I look at then who's next is Endicott. Endicott, as we know, is playing Salve Regina. I don't think that Endicott gives up more than 43 to Salve Regina. Wash U is playing Wheaton, and that'll be quite interesting. And I think I don't even go Wheaton here. And then I think I go down to see UW Oshkosh. Oshkosh is playing at Stevens Point, so that rules out Oshkosh. And then do I go back to Rippin again? If I say Rippin's going to give up more than 20 points, then I'm predicting Rippin to lose. We take a quick look at Birmingham Southern, who is hosting center. We didn't really talk about center. Getting off to 14 quick points against Trinity of Texas on Saturday. And then going down 41-7 the rest of the way. I think I'm going to take Birmingham Southern here in this spot. Birmingham Southern to give up more than 18 points to center on Saturday. Rippin under 20, Birmingham Southern giving up more than 18 to center, and that is on the spot. How badly did I do last week? Last week, I asked Pat to rank the following games in order of margin of victory. 
from largest to smallest. Those games were Central Lico, Randolph-Macon at Washington and Lee, River Falls at Whitewater, Pomona-Pitzer at Redlands. Pat ordered those games from largest to smallest as Central Co, Pomona Pitzer Redlands, River Falls, Whitewater, and Randolph Macon, Washington, and Lee. The actual order was Randolph Macon had the largest margin of victory in their win at Washington and Lee, then Co with this with just a six-point win over Central. And then tie for third, Whitewater and Redlands both won their games by three points. So close, except that your smallest was actually the largest, and then the rest were in order, more or less. <laughs> That's quite kind. What I see is I got one out of those four right somehow. I have no idea how to rank these things. You got me. So last week, we asked Greg to pick winners alphabetically from A to Z or A to W or as many as he felt comfortable doing. He ended up going through M, which was a segment that we managed to edit down to three minutes and 19 seconds. Some sequences may be shortened. And Greg correctly picked the following. Aurora, Brockport, Cortland, DePauw, Endicott, Franklin, Geneva, Heidelberg, Ithaca, Kings, Linfield, and Mass Dartmouth. But you're missing a letter there. Missed on Johns Hopkins, which lost to Susquehanna. Just one pick away from the mega, ultra, pluperfect, super exacta ticket. I looked. I couldn't find a uh, actual term for picking 13 things correctly on one ticket. Was there a J winner? I know I, I avoided like the total layups. I mean, I had some some layups in there but you did you took Ithaca I give you that for sure that's a great question right Juniata did not win John Carroll won John Carroll did. that would have been that would have been the one all right we hold ourselves accountable in the on the spot department we hold ourselves accountable in quick hits as well panel zeroed in on some good upset possibilities this week Greg Frank and Logan were correct in picking Platteville as an upset victim Riley and I were close with Ithaca but the Bombers ended up surviving Tips picked Randolph-Macon, but the Jackets won comfortably at WNL. Teams boosting their profile here before the first regional ranking comes out. Everybody picked a different team. Ithaca, Linfield, Hardin-Simmons, Utica, and Springfield all collected important wins. Riley chose Johns Hopkins, but the Blue Jays will be squarely now on the Pool C bubble after their loss to Susquehanna. Everybody was correct on the tricks and treats in the WIAC, correctly picking Whitewater, Lacrosse, and Stout to win. And finally, five of our six panelists correctly picked five Panthers to win. All of those, uh, all of those panelists correctly identified the five teams that won: Birmingham Southern, Greenville, Hanover, Middlebury, and Plymouth State. And this was Around the Nation podcast number three hundred and seventeen, released on October thirty first of twenty twenty two. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for all of the coverage that comes this week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alumnus about the show. You can even tell the fellow parents who think that we are in charge of overturning games or of getting your team into the playoffs. You can tell them about the show, then they can listen and find out that that's not how this works. You can also rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Tamara O'Malley. Special thanks to Tom Perkovich 
Frank Rossi and Ed Raby. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as also on Spotify. Thanks to the podcast co-founder Keith McMillan, and thank you to co-host Greg Thomas. It's kind of flattering, don't you think, though, to that some of our listeners and readers think that we can make the brackets, overturn games, that kind of thing? I don't make nearly enough money to make that happen. It's a validation of the site's expertise that people think that that is the level of influence that we have over game level items like overturning results from games that had missed calls. It'd be interesting to see if the Empire 8 makes a statement about the officiating at the end of this game. That's the one thing that could be done that uh, might well be done this week. Obviously, no solace and no actual way to overturn a game, but that is a thing that could happen. It is one thing that will not be overturned. Portland, they won the Empire 8. Congratulations to the Red Dragons. When I say most entertaining, what I'm thinking of is, you know, Greg, I am sure there have probably been other seasons where highly ranked teams have had such key games, big important games, very close games, but we didn't have a real top 25 poll until 1999, not counting the AFCA poll in that regard. We didn't have the ability to watch these games or to know what's going on in these games in real time, right? To me, the entertainment is the fact that there are so many of these things going on and often going on simultaneously, and you can, you know, kind of red zone yourself from one big game to the next big game to the next big game to the next big game. Yeah, I answered a question in Around the Nation this week where somebody asked about broadcasts, and I've noted that it's pretty incredible how far streaming of the games has come in a pretty short period of time really it wasn't that long ago that not every game had a stream i think every game every i've found a stream on every game now um howard Payne, i've seen games streamed there previously i'm sure of it i don't know why they're not doing it this year but things happen i understand but the quality of streams is good and you can get all of them and yeah i mean i set up a situation room every saturday to um watch five or six games at once keeping my eye on everything that's going on long game winning field goals in the WIAC by the time you get to this maybe you should just take this out <laughs>